Welcome to episode 94 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Dr. Thomas Delworth, Senior Scientist at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory, GFDL, in Princeton, New Jersey, where he has been a research scientist since 1984. GFDL is part of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and is one of the world's leading climate modeling centers. Tom's a faculty member in atmospheric and oceanic science at Princeton University, has been a contributing author for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and has authored over 160 papers for scientific books and journals. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Tom Delworth, Senior Scientist at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Laboratory and Faculty Member in Atmospheric and Oceanic Science at Princeton University. Tom, welcome to the Climate Champions. Lee, thanks. Great to be here. What was your motivating moment when you decided you were going to dedicate yourself to helping to mitigate climate change? Well, I'd have to go back quite a ways. I grew up in the Midwest. In the Midwest, we have these fantastic thunderstorms during spring and summer. And as a little kid, I just loved watching those, just fascinated by them. And that got me hooked on weather. And so I loved weather. And I decided I'd like to do this as a career. So I went to graduate school to study meteorology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And there, my interests moved more towards longer-term climate. How does the climate system work? Why do we have the climate we do? And so I more naturally turned towards longer timescales. At that time, when I started graduate school, the term global warming, no one knew what the event if you said global warming. So it was a very obscure, but I was very interested in longer term climate and began to study things like that. And so I naturally moved into longer timescales. And it's quite interesting, quite fascinating. And over the course of my career, global warming has gone from this obscure term that no one knew about to what a hot button item today and a very important one of that. When you get up in the morning, what drives you to fight the good fight on climate? Well, I would say I'm not fighting a fight. I'm just fascinated with the climate system and how it works. And so I love doing research. So I'm fortunate to work at a place where fundamental research is very much valued. And so we do research on very long timescales, very long personal timescales. Our research projects can take 10 to 15 years to complete, but also looking at the climate system on longer timescales. So I just love the curiosity, trying to understand how the system works doing computer model experiments to try and understand the system better. So we're really all about trying to understand the system, how it works. And that's how you then can build understanding that, that says, how will the system change in the future? You really have to understand what's under the hood in the climate system to understand how it's going to behave 10, 20, 50 years in the future. It seems very difficult to me because of all the variables, how you could possibly predict what's going to happen. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. In trying to understand the whole climate system, we start with the basics and we have physical laws. We have conservation of mass, conservation of energy, conservation of momentum. And those relationships can be expressed as mathematical equations. And we use those to try and understand the system. We can't 
take out a piece of paper and solve those equations with a pen and paper, that'd be great. You know, we can't do that. They're very complicated. So we, we try and build computer models in which we use numerical simulations to create what's really a virtual earth. And that chemists and biologists can conduct experiments in which they have a flask and they maybe mix chemicals, they see what happens. They repeat that 500 times, they see if this is a reproducible result, and then they're very confident in their results. They understand the system. For climate, we only have one earth. So we don't have that ability to perturb the climate 500 times over the course of the earth and see what happens. Instead, we approach this by trying to create virtual earths. And those are our computer models. And we use those to understand and perform virtual experiments to see what will happen in the future. But the real crux of it is, how do we build those virtual Earths that we can perturb? And that's the really hard science that comes into this. And we build computer models of the climate system. And the way we do that is if you think about the entire volume, say, of the Earth's atmosphere, we break that up into a whole bunch of boxes. And these boxes maybe are 100 kilometers on a side. And within those boxes, we can write down these various equations to describe conservation momentum, how the wind blows, conservation of energy, chemical reactions. If you put different chemicals into the atmosphere, how does that work? And then we try and then solve these using approximations, using computers for each of those grid boxes all over the world. So at all points on the world and all heights in the atmosphere, as well as depths in the ocean. That process is very computationally expensive. But when we use that sort of model, it provides us this virtual earth. And so the really challenging part is to better describe the physics, the chemistry that goes on on these small scales to allow us to better represent those in these various grid boxes. That's the real challenge. When you meet people that don't believe the climate is changing or don't understand the facts that you just went over with me, how do you convince them that this is an issue? Well, I'm not very good at that, I'll have to say, because I've found, at least in my experience, that most people have made up their mind and you can flap your jaw as long as you want and they don't change their mind. Those who are more sort of open-minded, I try and convey some basic sense of how the climate system works. You know, there's a, a movie a number of years ago called Jerry Maguire, in which the athlete who's being represented says, show me the money, show me the money. I always say with the climate system, the phrase I like is, show me the energy, show me the energy. <laughs> because the Earth's climate is a big energy system, big heat engine. And the foundations are we get energy from the sun, it does a lot of things in the atmosphere then goes back to space. And there's a balance that's created. And this balance is why humans can live on the planet. And there is a very natural greenhouse effect that without that natural greenhouse effect, we probably wouldn't have life on Earth, or at least life as we know it. Humans wouldn't exist without that natural greenhouse effect. It'd be too cold. Much too cold. And so if you can convince people of that and walk them through the sort of the very founding steps, it's very clear that this greenhouse effect is real and Humans wouldn't exist without it. And when we are very clearly changing that balance, we are very clearly increasing the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. It just is common sense that that's going to warm the planet in significant ways. We know we can measure the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. We know very clearly how rapidly they're increasing. It's extremely significant. And it really takes almost willful ignorance to really think that that magnitude of change in the greenhouse gases you have in the atmosphere isn't going to affect the climate system. But there are some people who simply don't want to believe that, and they're difficult to convince. When people tell me that there isn't enough proof that climate change exists, 
I think it's a pretty basic argument that without a doubt, we are causing the climate to change. I think the big debate is what exactly is going to be the effect of it. That part, I don't think, is nailed shut as to exactly what's going to happen. But I think that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, hey, this is what's going to happen. That's right. It's a virtual certainty that we are warming the planet and we will continue to warm it significantly. But what does that mean? Is that going to be two degrees centigrade or eight degrees centigrade? Does it mean it's going to occur in 2040 or 2080? There is still a lot of uncertainty about exactly how much warming there will be, how rapidly that will occur, and what all of the whole other host of impacts will be. Sea level, storms, permafrost, all those sorts of things. A lot of uncertainty, but actually that uncertainty should not comfort us. It should keep us awake at night because there is uncertainty that can lead to extreme risk. So it's not as if because we're uncertain, we don't have to worry about that. That uncertainty itself is a problem because what we don't know can really hurt us here. I think sometimes people hold on to the idea that we don't know, so we don't have to be afraid, which is what you're saying. But I think even in conservative models, and tell me if I'm wrong, it's bad. It's just a question of how bad it is. We really need to get on top of it. The warming is very clear, and it will be significant in virtually any model you use to project the future. Of course, how much it's going to warm depends upon the physics of the system, but it also depends upon what we do going forward. So our trajectory in terms of the kinds of emissions we put into the atmosphere between now and say 2050 is going to have a huge deal on what climate looks like in the 2080s, you know, when our grandchildren are our age or something like that. That future of climate is not written. It does depend upon what we do over the coming decades. I think one of the interesting things is that between say now and 2040 or 2045, that future is almost written because there's a lot of inertia in the system and the trajectory of emissions we're on right now is very difficult to change rapidly. So I think over the next couple of decades, very difficult to change, to alter the trajectory of climate change we're on. But in those later years, there's a lot of room to change where we're going to be. And that's up to us. Do you believe that the climate's changing has caused some of the major weather events that we've seen that have cost lives and cost a lot of money? It's always very difficult to talk about individual weather events and what they're attributable to. But people study that quite a lot. And the way I like to at least think about that is that things that are closer to the ultimate driving force for global warming are more likely attributable to human impact. What do I mean by that? Global warming is a change in the energy balance of the planet. And that change in the energy balance directly impacts temperature. That's the most directly driven thing in the climate system is temperature. So when we talk about increases in heat waves, for example, very clear that's due to human activity and human emissions. When you think about the Western US and the warming we see, much more rapid warming than the Eastern US, very likely to have a strong imprint of human activity from emissions changes. There are other changes around the planet that also we see have a very clear human impact. For example, we wrote a paper just a year or two ago, last year, on the so-called day zero drought in South Africa. A number of years ago, they had a three-year period where they really had insufficient rainfall. And the reservoirs in South Africa were very depleted, and they were close to getting to a certain threshold under which, if they had water values less than that, they would have had to shut off municipal water supplies. And we have done studies that suggest that 
that event was made significantly more likely by increasing greenhouse gases that say 50 years ago, it would have been virtually impossible to have that kind of event. Now, at least in our computer simulations, that event has maybe a three or 4% likelihood. And when we look into the future, if we continue on the course we are, that could be a 70% likely event. So just unbelievably dramatic shift in water resource. So there are definitely stream events around the world that we can't say uniquely that was attributable to human emissions, but we can say that was made far more likely by human emissions. When things are far more likely to happen and then they happen, it could be that it happened because of a long shot, or it could be it happened for the reason that the science indicates is probably happening. That's exactly right. But we always have to remember that there's a lot of variability in the system. I mean, weird things happen even without humans present. So that background natural variability is always present. But what we're seeing is this the human emissions driving increasing greenhouse gases and warming the planet are just changing the likelihoods, in some cases, very significantly of that. And so we're making things more likely, uh, more extreme. Not every extreme event can be attributable directly to global warming. Some people like to just say, aha, that was it. But it has to be slightly more nuanced than that. Nevertheless, there are many examples. For example, in 2019, over Alaska, record-breaking summer temperatures there. And again, we do studies and we can show that event almost certainly would not have happened without increasing greenhouse gases due to human activity. And it was made much more likely. And if we think into the future, we project that will become an almost common occurrence. So there are a lot of events, especially those closely tied to temperature heat waves. Those are very clearly related to increasing greenhouse gases. You talked a little bit about what you do. Can you go into more details about that? Absolutely. So we're a actually a federal research laboratory, part of NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And our mission, our mandate, is really to conduct fundamental research on the climate system. But our forte is building computer models of the climate system. So we actually have been in existence since the 1960s. And our laboratory was really the first in the world to build a very comprehensive climate model. And we've continued in that trend. So now there are a number of centers around the world that build uh, such climate models. We think we're the very top tier, but you know, that's, that's... You think you're the best. We do think we're the best. <laughs> but uh, there are a number of other top-rate national centers around the world, and we hope we're in that tier of top-rate centers. So that's what we do. And we build these computer models. We're always refining them. We're limited by a few things. We're limited by bright, good ideas that people have. That's the number one resource, is really creative thinking. We are limited by computer resources. These climate models are extremely computationally demanding. They need the fastest supercomputers in the world. And every time, if you get more computational power, you can do more. We're, as a laboratory, we're located on the graduate campus of Princeton University because the thinking was, we really want to have an academic flavor. So we have very strong interactions between Princeton University and our laboratory. A number of us teach in the graduate program at Princeton University. It's to engage graduate students, other faculty to try and create this nice synergy of different efforts. And so it's very successful in that regard. So that's where we are. That's what we do. I actually lead a division that is looking at building models and trying to increase understanding of variability and predictability in the climate system on timescales from seasonal out to multi-decadal. So we're really trying to say what's going to happen the next season, the next decade, the next few decades uh, based on our computer models. And so it's quite an interesting thing. And it's really at the crux of this intersection between this natural variability of the climate system, which has always existed, versus what we humans, how we're changing that. 
and how you distinguish between the two and how you detect what's a human-induced change versus what's natural variability. It's quite interesting, quite exciting, quite fun. Has the pandemic impacted what you do at all? Well, of course, it's affected everyone. Since we do so much computation on the computers, we're able to keep up the vast majority of our work. Obviously, everyone has been at home, but we're all used to working remotely, doing our computational analyses, things like that. So I think we're not quite as effective as we were when everyone was in the office because you miss, as I'm sure everyone is familiar with, you miss the casual conversations, things like that that occur. I would say it's very hard to schedule a Zoom meeting at 4.15 so we'll have some spontaneous discussion. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't work very well. So I think we're somewhat compromised, but we're maintaining the vast majority of what we do. Can you talk about your prior background? How did you get to where you are? Well, as I said, I had this interest in, in the weather. And so I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin. And then actually, believe it or not, I from there went to here. So I have actually been here continuously for decades, probably because our laboratory is really one of the best places in the world to be. It's very nice in that it, while it's part of a mission agency, which is NOAA, our mission is really fundamental research. And so you get to do things which are really creative and which can take a long time. Universities also did a lot of fantastic research in this area. But one of our strengths is that we can tackle problems that take 10, 15, 20 years to solve or come to a conclusion on that. It's very difficult to do that in the university world because you have these rapid grant cycles and, and so forth. So I think we can take on some very fundamental challenges that are difficult in any other context. So I think that's a unique advantage of our laboratory. And it's a, it's a great thing. Can you talk about any setbacks that you've had along the way? Well, to me, the most important element of all of this are creative people who work and bring good ideas and new ideas and change paradigms. And the biggest setbacks are always when we say lose someone. I mean, lose goes to the universal or some other endeavor. And so that those are some of our biggest setbacks if, if someone who's super creative leaves, because that's far and away. I mean, computers are critical. Other things are critical. But creative people, that's the most important element in all of this that we do. And so to me, our biggest setback is if we lose someone to some other activity. Now, they're going on to something else, which is, I'm sure, fun and great to do. We typically lose people to, say, a fantastic university position somewhere that, you know, with this endowed professorship or something. But that's our, to me, our biggest loss is if we lose someone who's really creative, really talented, who, who brings understanding to a new level. That's our biggest loss because that's our most precious resource, or really those sorts of people. Can you talk about some of your major successes that you've been proud of? I would say that we have several. One are the number of scientists at our laboratory who really have done outstanding work and are recognized so well around the world and are so heavily respected because, I, again, I believe in individual scientists rising up and showing their stuff. So I, I think that's a great success. We've had a number of people who have done so well on the national and international stage, and that's a really a great thing, being recognized so highly for many of their accomplishments. That's a great thing. Another great thing is that the models we build, which are the tools that we use to understand the climate system, have uniformly been rated best, or there's a small tier of really, really top models around the world, and we're always in that pool. So I think that, to me, is an incredible success story that we're able to maintain that year after year, and literally decade after decade, staying in that elite class around the world of developing and using and improving and refining the top climate models around the world, because those top climate models are what we use to project how the climate system will change in the next 50 or 100 years. So those have a profound impact on 
what we as a planet think of climate change, the decisions we make. And so the quality of those tools is paramount to trying to grapple with what's going to happen. So that the fact that you can maintain over decades, continuously building these tools, which are always at or near the top in the world, that's a great success story to me. It seems like it was about 25 years ago when my wife, because she's friends <laughs> with your wife, yeah. introduced us. And I recall her or your wife telling me that you had done something incredible with regards to understanding climate change and the weather. Did you do some early work or something that was very important? I mean, I've done a lot of work over the years. In some sense, the mark you leave are the series of papers you write. I mean, one of our big products, I mean, my wife asked me early on, probably before we were married, you know, she was in banking and she didn't understand my world, which is scientific research. And so she said, what's your product? What's your product? <laughs> in banking, you know what your products are. And so in, in my field, your products are research papers because that's how you publish and other scientists around the world read your papers. They learn, you read their papers. So papers are our biggest product. I've written a lot of papers and a lot of people have read them and cite them. In some sense, that's the, one of the marks you leave in the field is what you've published and how other people then take what you've created and published and use it in their own. And that's sort of a stepping stone around the world. Every scientist reads whatever else is written and uses that as their fodder, their creative ideas to go forward. To me, that's the mark of a scientist. Have your publications influenced the rest of the community to move forward? When you look at the earth 20, 30, 40 years from now, what is your vision of the future concerning climate change and the weather? Well, I think the next, say, 30 years from now, we're on a current trajectory that's going to be actually increasingly difficult to change. We can change it, but it's increasingly difficult. So what do I see over that time span? We'll be significantly warmer than we are now. The world's oceans will have warmed, so sea level will be rising. We will have changes in the patterns of rainfall. Droughts will become more common in some places, not all places, some places. Heat waves will become much more common. The seasons will change. Winter's shorter, summer's longer. A lot of changes uh, that we see going on. But I think the really troublesome things are probably, number one, there are certain elements of the climate system that sort of change continuously. If you turn up the greenhouse gases, it warms. If you turn down greenhouse gases, it cools. So that's sort of a reversible change. There are other elements of the climate system which are not reversible because if you induce some warming, it creates a change, which even if you turn off that warming, isn't going to come back. And one of the biggest things there are the land-based ice sheets, because once you melt those or reduce those significantly, you probably can't build them back. And so there are thresholds that we can pass after which climate just can't recover. So that's actually one of the biggest worries is if you pass these critical thresholds, which aren't well understood, how will that impact the climate system and ice sheets? Because there's a lot of fresh water tied up in Greenland. There's a lot more tied up in Antarctica. And if those pass critical thresholds that lead to runaway melting, the coastal areas are just in a profound trouble. That's probably my number one concern about the climate system is that happening. The other really big concerns are what don't you know and how is that going to potentially come up and bite you. There are things you worry about, whether it's the permafrost melting and, and leading to potentially releases of, of gases or other surprises that we don't know about. Our models are imperfect. And sometimes I worry that our models may be too stable. And are they really not capturing all of the complex feedbacks that could lead to problems that we don't fully understand right now? That's actually my biggest concern. 
Similarly, I've been worried about the fear of scientists being wrong, keeping lower probability events they research from being represented in official reports, such as the IPCC. How is that science discussed? They're pretty good about that in terms of quantifying uncertainty. They may phrase it as, we just don't know, or something like that, but they will include a range of potential outcomes. And they'll rate them by highly likely, likely, 50-50, unlikely. So there's a whole spectrum of things. Has the pandemic affected your vision of the future with regards to climate or what we can do about climate? Well, I I will say, and I'll try and be very careful how I say this, the pandemic was uh, obviously something, still is, something extremely serious. And science did a very good job of understanding what was going on and proposing solutions to that that would mitigate the problem. And the results of either taking or not taking that action were very clear. I think they're in everyone's face. So we could see if you did these things, a good outcome. If you didn't do those things, a bad outcome. And the feedback was virtually instantaneous. We could see it very quickly. And yet, despite that very clear set of potential outcomes, there are lots of people who reject that science, even though it's in your face, it's obvious, it's not theoretical, it's happening right now. And yet that science is rejected. Let's take that lesson, apply it to climate science, where the problem is not so much in your face. The problem is growing over time in the future. It's not quite as in your face in terms of the science and the results. The challenge of dealing with that is much larger than the challenge of the pandemic in terms of getting concerted public opinion. And yet we weren't completely successful in the pandemic. And I think climate change is a much harder problem to deal with. So I think that's a big problem. In terms of translating to climate, that's one of the lessons from the pandemic that despite science being so right, so on target, it's rejected by a lot of people. So if we take that lesson and apply it to climate, that's a bit disconcerting. People will choose not to believe science so they can continue the behavior they already have. But I think with regards to the vaccine, science made a way that you can pretty much go about your normal life, we hope. And I think that's what many of those people are hoping for with climate, that science will solve the problem so that they won't have to. We do have a solution, (laughs) and that's to put fewer greenhouse gases in the atmosphere or somehow take them out. But that affects our lives. Well, I'm always of the belief, and this is, I'm not an expert in policy, I know the science, and this is just me speaking as an individual, but I've always thought that the way to approach this issue is more from an economic perspective than an environmental perspective, in that green power can make a lot of people a lot of money. It's a national security issue, it's an economic issue, and just setting aside the climate system, there's so many benefits to going to green power that then actually solve the climate problems. I believe that's a very strong way, and I think that's very analogous to developing a vaccine and implementing that. So I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned. A debate that I've heard on this podcast a number of times is the question, how far can technology and science go and how much do humans have to change? And are we going to need both or can science alone do it? And I think that's really the question. Will it depend on behavior change or not? Well, again, just speaking as an individual, (laughs) personal (laughs) opinion, I actually want a solution where behavior doesn't have to change. I want a solution where you can turn your thermostat up or down as you please to make yourself as comfortable as you want, because that energy to do that is coming from a green source. I want to be able to jump in your car and drive wherever you want, because that energy is coming from a green source. So to me, 
I think that's the best solution is that behavior really doesn't have to change. We have all the conveniences and security and safety we want. We're just getting energy in a different way. What is one piece of advice that you would give people that want to help? I think that the choice of our elected officials has a huge impact on the future of this problem because I don't think that this is a climate change, again, speaking as an individual, (laughs) is something that can be solved by individual actions. It needs to be solved by coordinated governmental policy. And so those that we elect to serve in office, they have the ability to affect the right solutions. And so if there's one thing people can do, if they think this is an important problem, is to do whatever they can, again, speaking as an individual, (laughs) to have people in positions of power and who can make decisions that also think that's a problem and can affect the right solutions. Is there anything else you want to say? Climate really is a defining topic of our times. It's not the only one, but it is a defining topic. And the solution is in our hands. It is now very tractable. And I think that the climate of the next couple of decades, that level of climate change is pretty much already baked in. But what happens after that point is totally up for grabs. We will need some very significant changes from the level of emissions that we have now in order to make those changes. But it's very, very tractable so that it will take a long time. Climate will not snap back. Even if you reduce the emissions, you're still building up carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which stays there for centuries. So in order to really make radical changes in bringing the climate system back to where it has been, We have to go beyond net zero to actually find ways of taking carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's a big challenge, but I think it's something that we can do. And on that somewhat optimistic note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. It was our wives that first brought Tom and I together. They said, hey, this guy, he's an expert on the weather. It does not take a significant lurch. You've just got to do the weather modeling research. There is no reason for folks to deny it. Obviously, we're seeing changes to the climate. Your computer simulated models have many variables that are weighted because doing it by hand, it's just too complicated. He uses a virtual earth, and that's how Tom knows how the climate's changing and how the wind blows. There are many dangers in our future it may cost. For instance, we can permanently lose the Earth's permafrost. The sea level will rise. We'll have to learn to wade. He'll model long-term scenarios because the issues are multi-decadal. Again and again, Tom did insist when people leave, they will be missed. The biggest setback is losing a creative scientist. Emission reductions, we have to meet those demands. Let's take on the challenge together. The future's in our hands. (laughs) That was very creative. That's one of those creative things. Well done. I think if you market that, I'll bring in a lot of money and we can fund a whole new research center. So we'll solve the problem. Tom's poignant point about the melting of the ice sheets, the impact on coastal communities, and the inevitability of significant impacts over the next few decades, regardless of what we do today, kicked up the urgency factor for me again. What are we waiting for? If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rated five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. 
Tom pointed out that while he can run the simulations and shine a bright light on the changes our planet is facing, the biggest impact that we can make is to vote climate change mitigation to step up the level of government focus on leveraging the solutions that we already have and those that are being developed to aggressively mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.